It's time for building the game. Building the game with Jason and friends. Tabletop building the game with Jason and friends. It's at the end of the episode. That's when it technically ends. Hello and welcome to Building the Game, a documentary podcast. Today is Monday, December eighteenth. And you're listening to episode 603. As always, I am your host, Jason, here today joined by co-host, Jamie Sabriel. How you doing? Hello. Hello. Oh, I'm so good. How are you? Good. Doing all right. It's good to have you here. Yeah. It's been one hot minute. It has. It's weird because I forget that sometimes because we talk it pretty much every week. So it's always weird when I'm like, oh, we didn't record though. We just talked. No one else heard that. (laughs) (laughs) and honestly that's for the better most of the time we say a lot of nonsense to each other just all the time it's true (laughs) there's a lot of nonsense flying around the discord so which is um i wouldn't have it any other way yeah it keeps it it keeps it lively Mm -hmm. well hey um you uh recently you were at pax i was at pax i saw you speaking of one hot minute uh that's how long i saw you at pax in a hallway (laughs) and then i saw you distantly one time playing a game Yep. Uh, and then one time demoing games, uh, all you in prob- total for about 60 seconds. I think <laughs> you probably saw the only time I got to demo a game and the only time I got to play a different game. Um, yeah, yeah. Cause, uh, this experience of seeing me for one hot minute, that was the experience that everyone had. And that was how my packs went. I am at the point where I think that I need a new plan for conventions because mm-hmm. I, am in a bunch of communities now people are like starting to learn my name and i'm close to getting games out and all this other stuff i've been doing is working for publisher friends of mine because i find great joy in that experience and i love it um but it definitely comes with some strong downsides like i was doing it both because i wanted to see what it's like to work for a different publisher on the inside um even though it's just Mm -hmm. like one or two days and i wanted to you know, practice demoing games that weren't mine because I feel a lot of pressure when I like try to market pitch my own games to people at conventions. That's what I found when mm-hmm. I was doing stuff with the Night Moves booth. Um, I just felt a lot of pressure, and it's one of those like silly things. Like I just need to, I need a new headspace, and so I was working for other publishers at conventions, and also big thing to subsidize the costs of going to conventions because it can mm-hmm. be expensive. Um. But I have a day job now that I quite like and pays me enough that I'm like slowly becoming less poor, uh, which is good. And the experience that I had at PAX Unplugged overall really highlighted this thing of like, maybe maybe it's time to switch up the plan um, because I had to blow off a lot of people and I feel very bad about it. Like I at no point ever felt comfortable doing like a one-on-one hangout with people, which just felt really bad and i didn't like it um Mm -hmm. because i had a lot of tentative plans but it's you know between the demoing for two out of three full days of the convention Mm -hmm. and i had a networking thing to go to on friday night which took up the entire night which was awesome but that's my entire friday spoken for Um, and then saturday was i demoed the entire day saturday and then had uh because i'm one of the moderators of break my game i had the the break my game meetup to go to, which also was awesome, but it it means that that time was spoken for. And I just had an hour in between and that went pretty much all night. Um, And then I just had Sunday for me to like do pitches, say hi to people, hang out with people, go to unpub and play Mm -hmm. games, all the other stuff. And then within that, I had a two hour demo block with the building the game table. 
And so I just felt like I was constantly in this state of like running around and rushing around and mm-hmm. I didn't really get to have time for me. And so I think what I want to try doing, um, at least in 2024, and we'll see how it goes, is treating conventions more like I definitely will always treat them like networking conventions because that's what I do now, um, but also more like vacation instead of work stuff to try mm-hmm. to alleviate that pressure and just let me like hang out with my friends and chill and goof off. Cause one of the best things about conventions is that I get to see my friends from all over the world that I don't get to see otherwise. Um, so overall my PAX experience was great. A lot of really awesome stuff happened. The big gay dinner especially was like mind blowing. Holy heck. I got, I have some stories from that. Um, but overall, I just felt like I was rushing and running around and all this other stuff. And it's this is the sort of thing like we've talked about this in the discord about how I don't want to feel like pitching is a grind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of felt like the entirety of PAX Unplugged kind of felt like a grind to me. Mm-hmm. And that really sucked a lot of the fun out of it. And I was very tired and stressed, which is not what I want to be at conventions or any time. <laughs> so. Right, right. Yeah, I've worked um, back in the day. I worked at some conventions, mostly for publishers who had my games coming out, doing some mm-hmm. pitching for them, and and I worked, you know, anywhere from a full day to a little bit each day, um, to you know an hour. You know, now basically, if a publisher is like, "Hey, you've got this game out, um, would you like to work in the booth at all?" I'm usually like, "I can do an hour." on a day like let's pick a day and i'll do an hour or so Mm -hmm. um it's not because i'm lazy it's not because i don't want to it's for all the reasons you've described um i don't like getting forced to spend a bunch of time in one spot where i don't really have a lot of options um yeah i personally don't find it um like thrilling or exciting like i find it very draining to spend time in the convention hall um, pitching games to people, whether they're mine or someone else's, like I just, it's just not a thing that gives me joy. I mean, I, with my last game, no context, I did, I got to hang out with banana for an hour and we pitched the game to people and played it through with them. And that was a lot of fun, but that was because I was hanging out with my friend goofing around playing this game with a few people, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's a fun demo, but like in general, it's just, I don't know. I, I find it really draining and I also tend to lose my voice very quickly. Um, you know, and now with, now with the COVID stuff, I'm always have a mask on in that area, which means that I have to talk even louder and it's even worser and more awfuler as they say, um, more or less good grammar. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) no, it's not less good. It's fewer good. Um, oh yeah. Got me again. Got me again. Fewer good. Yeah. Cause it's a number. Right. Yeah, but anyways, uh, um, so uh, yeah, so I I tend to not do that. Um, I still get asked a lot, "Hey, would you want to do this thing?" and and I usually just just say no. I mean, I know with some games coming out, there may be some expectations of that. Um, yeah, and, and I'll I'll do my part. You know, um, I actually had some friends offer to. They had a booth and they were looking to fill it out with some extra stuff, and they said, "Hey." Uh, would you want to sell some stuff in the booth if you can ship stuff out to us and we'll, we can put it in the booth. And they showed me, you know, like how we split earnings and stuff from that. And, and it was all very cool. It was a very generous offer. And, and as I got closer, I said, you know what, like, how much do you want me to work in the booth? And they were like, Oh, you know, I don't like, they, 
I, I kind of felt like they were saying like you don't have to, but I was like, if you're gonna sell my stuff and you're not the publisher, right? Like, I'm not going to make your life harder by saying you have to explain these games you've never played, right? Right. Because these are, like, RPGers, um, and they mm. were going to put in, like, Water Balloon Washout, uh, Unreal Estate, and uh, Into the Black Forest, which is awesome. But, like, you know, they said, so you can spend as much time in the booth as you want. And I felt like I should probably spend a good couple hours a day in there. And I was like, you know what? I'm just not going to do it for that reason because i don't want to do that um and uh that doesn't sound fun so right um that said i get the privilege of not having to work at conventions right like um you know there are a lot of people who can only go to conventions because they work enough to get a free badge a free hotel room yeah um, and sometimes actual pay on top of that um well and- let me tell you my Tell the tell you the inside scoop there because many many people uh, have moved away from the free hotel room and have moved towards an hourly rate or a day rate uh, mm-hmm. of pay, which makes it actually still pretty expensive because you have to find your own accommodation now. Right, right, and I know they still a lot of them will give a badge away, right? Because when you yes. buy a booth, you get X number of badges. So yes, and the exhibitor badge is, in my opinion, the biggest perk because I am literally mm-hmm. allergic to lines. I will break out in hives if I am in that giant line. So. Yeah, we um uh, a couple of us. Uh, it was uh, me and Ashwin. We um borrowed some exhibitor badges uh, from Ben. Uh, Beagle, because he had he had them and he hadn't passed them out. He said, Can we borrow these for a little bit? We want to go check out the mm-hmm. setup in the hall because it sounds kind of cool to like see what they're setting up. Because like I don't normally get into the hall at that point. People are still driving cars around there, which is really weird. Um, oh yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> so we went in and got to walk around and kind of got the lay of the land beforehand, which was really nice. Nothing was for sale or anything yet, but um, being able to have that access was fun. Um, and. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, but I'm with you. Like working at those things is tough. It's a tough choice. Um, I respect that people need to do it, and I'm thankful yeah. that there are people who will do it. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I think that if you don't have to, and you feel like it's making it harder for you, then by all means, you shouldn't do that. I mean, you, I feel like at least have scaled back a bit. You were like, I'm working for these four companies, and like, <laughs> I remember trying to schedule stuff with you in the first like conventions where I knew you, and you were like, Well, I'm free for about an hour here, or <laughs> and then Sunday, next like, week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I'm gone Sunday evening. Like in this case, you had some free time on Sunday, but I left Sunday morning first thing, so um, because yeah. I came in on uh thursday midday and so i was there for quite a long time but you know skipping that so and then as it turns out i was like technically kind of free the for the recording but that was the one time you saw me playing a game and so i just missed the recording time totally fine totally fine yeah and that's the thing is like i it definitely was a matter of how underprivileged i was that i definitely had to work and now i have a little more financial freedom because my job pays me enough to survive, which is wild mm-hmm. um, and hasn't always happened in my life. Right, so, right. Yeah. It doesn't uh, happen for a lot of people, unfortunately. It's true. And so, I mean, like, and you know, that also comes with downsides because March, oh my God, March, March is insane for me. I have four conventions in a row across three weeks in March and two of them involve traveling out of state. 
three of them technically, but one is a quick drive because it's New Hampshire and I live in Massachusetts. But uh, it's uh, so really I'm like just trying to pick up as many shifts as possible, which is a different kind of underprivileged. Um, but mm-hmm. that's a different that's a different topic for a different time. Right, um, right, I actually right. met Banana Chan. I wanted to mention I met Banana Chan in person at the big gay dinner. Um, oh, good. Good. Yeah. yeah. She didn't remember me, though. So I'm, you know, for what good that is worth. <laughs> in Banana's defense, you've met once online in a game yeah. playing other characters. Uh, it was <laughs> about a true. year and a half ago. Uh, and Banana is uh, meets about 8 billion people <laughs> every convention, <laughs> I feel like. Banana yeah. is very much in demand. Um, Banana-nand? And awesome. uh... In Banand. In Banand, yeah. Okay, that's so, much yeah. better. Yeah, I knew there was one there. I just was not 100% there. Yeah. So, hey, you brought a topic that is fun to talk about in theory. And so we're going to talk about it. <laughs> not in theory. We're going to talk about it for real. In, in theory, it's going to be entertaining and fun. We're going to find yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we've talked about how much I love teaching other games. I just love mm-hmm. teaching games in general. And I've been thinking critically a lot about teaching games and I've had some discussions on break my game about how to like teach games, how to demo games, all this other stuff. Um, and interesting topics came up and this is one of those things. Like I remember last time I was on, I brought a topic where it's like, I just sort of accidentally was only thinking about my own perspective. And now I'm, I'm trying to like also consider other people's perspectives because I am often bad at that unless someone probes me to. And I'm trying to get better at that. Um, So this time I have, you know, I love teaching and I have a lot of teaching games. I have a lot of opinions about it. But the one thing I want to talk about specifically is do you teach just the rules or do you also teach strategy for the game? And I have a very strong set of opinions regarding definitely do not teach strategy. Do not teach me strategy when you teach me a game. And I do. I will not teach strategy ever to players. I want them to discover that on their own. For me, that is one of the joys of playing games. And I had a long discussion on Break My Game with another member who stated that like, they just wholeheartedly disagree with that opinion. And they think that teaching strategy is a really important and valuable tool to make games more fun more quickly. And so I have a whole bunch of thoughts. I want to hear your thoughts because I know you have thoughts as well. Well, good news. Talking about other perspectives, I have the exact opposite perspective of you. Uh, I hate teaching games. I hate demoing games. Uh, And I think you should teach strategy. (laughs) So, hey, wow. Just. Yeah, Let's we're gonna all the way down, all the way well, down the. It was list. really funny to hear you saying that as you as you went down the list, uh, because I was like, "Well, this is gonna be fun." Because, like, I, yeah. I, that said, like before you even give any of your points as to why those other things, I agree that you are correct in many cases. Like with this, like I actually see both sides of it, um, yeah. but I, yeah, I, I think I think this will be fun. So. Uh, you want to start off by um, – why don't you start off by explaining why you enjoy teaching games? Because mm. I don't understand that. So tell me why. <laughs> so one of my favorite things about games is that I get to – like when I am sharing a game with someone, I get to give them an entertaining and informational – how do I want to say this? Like it's entertainment and it's also expanding your brain. Um 
like it's teaching you stuff about you and the world and like you your brain will work better afterwards or during ideally um and i get to share that experience and i get to like i have the responsibility to curate it in such a way like it is my responsibility to make sure that you learn the game and have a good time and i take that responsibility seriously and i really enjoy the puzzle of how to present the information in the most efficient way possible and that will like have it stick in your brain and i think that you know going into the psychology of jamie in a general sense i think that one of the most important parts of being a human is sharing your knowledge with other humans um and games are a very microcosm way for me to do that like a little bite-sized way for me to do that easily with a set of rules that is easy for autistic jamie to understand and like and share um so that's why i love teaching games in a general sense like i love the puzzle of how to onboard someone onto a game that i enjoy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense um that's probably the part that i hate the most about it um, is trying to figure out how to, cause like when I tell a story, like I, I'm a storyteller. I love telling stories. Obviously y'all have heard me tell a lot of stories in here. Mm-hmm. I like sharing knowledge. I like giving facts. I like talking all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to sitting down and trying to explain to a group of people how to do something complex, um, based on rules that I am not the person who's written, um, mm-hmm in an order that makes sense to them is very difficult for me um, because uh, things make sense in a very different way to my brain uh, than a lot of people. And so because of that, uh, I find myself giving the wrong information at the wrong time um, or perhaps giving the right information at the wrong time. Um, And I have, well, I, well, I feel like I'm pretty good at seeing other people's perspectives. What I'm not good at is seeing other people's lack of knowledge sometimes. So when I start to explain something, I have trouble thinking about what it would be like to not understand any of something, right? Mm -hmm. To say like, I am a blank slate about this game or (laughs) this type of game or, you know, terms like deck building or stuff like that. So I have trouble um sometimes explaining those things to people in a logical straightforward way because if there's one thing my brain does not do it's work in a logical straightforward way <laughs> um so i have trouble putting those words out in a in an order that makes sense to people yeah so i have two quick follow up insights on that this is another big reason why I worked for publishers for a whole bunch of conventions because I wanted to get better at this and like doing it under fire is the best way for me to get better in a hurry. Um, And I also realized that I was doing the same thing. Like I was having a lot of trouble putting myself in the shoes of other people, which, you know, as someone on the autism spectrum, that is an exceedingly common circumstance for me. Um, And I learned that my teaches got a lot better when I started a dialogue at the start and like kept the dialogue going um, because there are many, many ways to teach a game and there's no such thing as one way that works for everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is something, you know, that I've learned through demoing at conventions, demoing my own games online for like playtests and stuff. And so, you know, I'll start with questions like, 
hey, like, are you familiar with deck builders? Some common ones are Dominion, Ascension, and Clank. Uh, like, give examples. Try to latch on to common ground and extrapolate from there. Like, when I was first demoing Fight Sequence, uh, something that I used to say is like, hey, are you familiar with Magic the Gathering? Uh, because the main thing that you do in fight sequences essentially build a stack like in magic um and so if someone is experienced with magic they have a common through line to learn this game and and envision the game that's really what the thing comes down to so it's like you know i just taught clank to someone who uh, i i taught clank to a new friend a few days ago and the reason why I felt comfortable like just launching right into it is because I knew that she was familiar with deck builders. I taught Robot Quest Arena to someone two weeks ago who had absolutely no idea what a deck builder was. And having that conversation first really helped me set the stage because it's like, all right, cool. I have to explain mm -hmm. what a deck builder is first. And that is an entirely different process than, you know, launching into the other stuff. Um, so I think that going back to should you demo at, for publishers at cons, another consideration is if you want to get better at teaching games, that is a way to do it in a hurry. In my yeah. Opinion. So agree and disagree on that. Like I, I am actually good at demoing games. If the publisher gives me a script, essentially, if the publisher says, oh. here's how to demo this game and then explains to me a 60 second pitch, I will memorize that pitch very quickly because that's just how my brain works. And then I will um, be able to regurgitate that in a very useful way. I'll even be able to ad lib around that to make it more fun. Mm -hmm. um, but when it's here is this book of rules, explain this book of rules to someone. So what I've started to do actually that, that's helpful to me is um, I've found that my, well, for instance, I play a lot of games with my wife and she always wants to know what's the goal of the game. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I've struggled with with leading with that is sometimes the goal of the game doesn't make sense until you understand the game. So usually what I start with is this is a game about robots flying in space doing X. The goal is to do Y. That's how you win. And then I back into it from there. Um, mm -hmm. But what I have found for me is... Uh, and this actually is the same for, cause I hate learning rules to new games, despise it. So many new games I haven't played because I don't want to read the rules and learn how to play it. Mm. Um, so what I've found for me is I, the first thing I do is read the setup and set the entire game up. And then I learn to play it or teach how to play it after that's done, because then I can reference things. Um, I've seen people mm -hmm. who will teach you by just like throwing cards out and showing you stuff. And I'm like, this is so unhelpful. Like, this does not work for me at all. Yeah. Um, that leads yeah. into something that I've been thinking a lot about. There are a bunch of different learning styles, but, it, and this statement is not backed by research into psychology. This is a Jamie original opinion, um, a gut feeling, as it were. I think that everyone is some degree of kinesthetic learner. Like not everyone is an audio learner. Not everyone is a visual learner. Everyone to some extent is a kinesthetic learner. So if nothing else, lean into that. Um, in case people are unfamiliar with the term, a kinesthetic learner means you learn by doing the thing yourself. Right, uh, right. And, and so the the easiest and quickest way for you to learn is to just like get in there and get your hands right. dirty. Of course, this does not work in all cases. Like you don't want to be a a purely kinesthetic learner if you're trying to be an electrician because you'll die right, uh, right. 
the I mean if work. you turn off the if you turn off the power first, you're probably okay. Um don't take this as advice on how to be an electrician. <laughs> I can this tell is, you this. I've turned dangerous. off things in the fuse box <laughs> and then still made sparks uh, because I couldn't figure out where the – I would used to live in this old house and everything was mislabeled. Um, oh, no. And I couldn't figure out how to shut a ceiling fan off. So I eventually uh, took a rubber-handled uh, uh, screwdriver and just tapped two wires together, made some sparks, flipped the breaker, and then I was like, well, there's the breaker. All right. Do oh, not wow. try that at home, but Don't you know what? It. it did work. <laughs> it did work. Yeah, and um, there's also the thing of like, if you're trying to rewire something, yeah, you could shut off all the power and then rewire something. And then when you turn the power back on, your house is on fire. So yeah, don't don't be an amateur electrician. That was actually something that I was told in school. I went to a vocational high school. And mm -hmm. so we did alternating weeks of like academic classes and then shop classes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in freshman year, we rotated through all the shops and something that multiple teachers of shops said to me is like you can be an amateur baker you can be an amateur cook you can even be an amateur plumber you absolutely cannot be an amateur electrician because you will die don't do that <laughs> so, right i for the record uh have never had formal training on any of that but have rewired oh. an entire garage oh uh, dear safely <laughs> um and up to code funny enough wow um, okay. i mean i had a friend show me stuff he was also right. not a licensed electrician um, but I mean, I, I routinely change like lights in my house and stuff like rewire lights and things like that, because that's not, I put in ceiling fans. What's up, Robbie Bergstrom. Um, <laughs> uh, but I've, so I've done a lot of that stuff, um, because, because, well, this is not suggesting you should do this. It's hard to mess that up. There are generally three wires. You put them in the wire nuts together in the correct order and good news in general, they're color coded. Uh, and then, then it works or it doesn't. Um, and as long as you don't do something stupid, um, like leave a bunch of bare wires everywhere. And if you do, <laughs> you usually find out pretty quickly that that was stupid. Um, yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, I'm not suggesting you should do any wiring in your house if you don't know how to, for the record. <laughs> Uh, you should always have a licensed electrician and I know my limits. I might put a new light in, but if I'm like, I mean, a replace a light, but if I'm like, I want to put new lights in then I call an electrician friend and have them do it. Uh, okay. Cause I don't well, want to risk that problem. Okay. So side feel, note. I yes. A little better, <laughs> but yeah, don't it, it, side note is don't do amateur electrician work. Right. Right. It's, it's true. It's for true. Me. Yeah. Consider yeah. it a favor to me and your entire <laughs> family and friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but to go back to your point about like setting up the game first and then reading through the rules now that you have that reference and like can act stuff out, that absolutely is also what I have adopted because mm -hmm. I cannot absorb information from text alone. Um, no, neither can I. I pictures in rule books have been the single greatest thing for me. And also yeah. whenever I write rule books now, I put in pictures because it A saves a lot of words. And B, helps anyone like me who needs to see what something looks like to know what it is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. This is not about writing rule books, but those are some <laughs> hot tips for you. But, yeah. I mean, and we can extrapolate it to teaching games. And to talk about your point about, like, how to win the game, I mm -hmm. agree in a general sense that, you know, there's a lot of advice bandied about when it comes to writing rule books and also teaching games and all this other stuff of like get to how to win as soon as possible. Right. We need to know that and have that in our brain so we can contextualize the rest of the rules. And I agree with that asterisk. I agree with that. Mostly. 
I think that sometimes you need a little context feeding into the victory condition. So when I teach fight sequence now, two new people sitting down to fight sequence, it is not the first thing I say of how to win. It's probably the fourth thing. So I can help players contextualize. Because if I were to sit down and say, hey, this is a card game, you're dealing damage to each other. The game is over when your deck is empty. That saying that first, I found is like, oh, geez, we're going to be here for a long, long time. There's 45 cards in this deck. We're drawing right, five right. card hands. What the heck? Um, and I found that that actually is a detriment to the teach because that's setting someone up on the wrong foot. So what right. I do is I say, okay, cool. This is fight sequence. You're building sequences of actions. Let's look at a card. This is the power. Let's talk about that first. Power is how much damage you deal. This is what damage looks like. And I literally flip cards off of the deck into the discard. And then I say, so that's what damage looks like. De your deck is your health. You lose when you take damage when your, de when your deck is empty. And that's now right. players are like, oh, OK, we're going to play like four rounds or something, which is exactly right. Um, so, yeah, there's nuance to all mm -hmm. methods of teaching for sure. But this general plan that you're discussing of like set up the game first so you can get that you could tap into that kinesthetic learning. I think that that is pretty much globally going to improve a teach regardless of the game and regardless mm -hmm. of the people. Again, going back to this is not something I researched in terms of psychology or player behavior. It's just a gut feeling that I have developed over many times of teaching. Um, so it is a it's a Jamie opinion as opposed to a psychological fact. But mm -hmm. that actually brings me to uh, the other part of the thing that we're talking about, where it's like right. I I never ever want to hear strategy in a game. And there's a lot that goes into that. And I never want to teach strategy. And there's a lot that goes into that. So a long time ago, I forget the name of it. You might remember the name of it, but there's this thing going around that it, it was like sort of like a Myers-Briggs test, but for board game personality, like what kind of board games do you enjoy? Yeah, I remember that. Remember yeah, that? yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I took that and I thought it was very enlightening. I thought it was very interesting. Um, it told me that, you know, there's Ooh, a, there was a bunch of spectrums. Oh, sorry, can I guess? That. Can I guess? Yes. Do you want to guess? I think that you rated most highly in strategy and competitiveness. Ooh, that's actually not true. Oh, really? Yeah. You're like one of the most competitive game players I've ever met. <laughs> You're like, I will make other people lose just to spite them. <laughs> I definitely put on my, my, my sassy goblin hat more often than I <laughs> care to admit. Um, but uh, that is mostly dependent on who I play with, <laughs> more so than the game. Um, so I, I actually, I have played a number of games competitively, and it is not something that I derive joy from. And here's why. In order to succeed at a competitive game... So when you say competitive gaming, I the thing that my brain goes to, which isn't... I, I don't mean that, though. I know what she goes to, but I don't mean that. Like, actual competitive gaming. I mean, like, right. when you are playing a game you derive a lot of pleasure from winning said game more than you do from playing said game. See, that's actually not true. And the really? fact that I gave you that impression. Yeah. So here's exactly what it, all right. So one of the big things that stood out for me that from that test is that they put people on a spectrum. One of the spectrums is on one end is mastery. And on the other end is discovery. And I am, 2% mastery, 98% discovery. This One is not the same this is not the same test that I that I took. 
Uh, I think it is because that also did talk about competitiveness and other stuff. Did it, but just, was, it, it was, like was a, it like a funky pointy star like chart a, thing? Yeah, the spider chart. Oh, yeah. Okay, the way you were describing it did not sound like that. So I just wanted to make oh, sure I was yeah, saying like the same thing. I, cool. Yeah, I pulled out one piece of it. So like, right, yeah, it right. was a spider chart and one of the opposite end things was discovery and mastery. And that was the thing that stood out to me. 98% discovery. Um, the thing that I love to do the most is learn more about the game, discover new things to do in the game. The easiest way to verify that is winning, but it's like that Rainer Nitzia quote. Like the goal for me is not to, like the goal is to win, but it's the goal that's important, not the win. Um, and so for me, the pleasure that I derive from games is not winning. It is verifying that this strategy that I came up with on my own actually worked, which is what the discovery is all about sounds um, a lot like winning it it is it does sound <laughs> closely related but that's not the thing so like part of it too is like stretching the limits of the game and so something that i didn't realize until i took this test is like oh i am the kind of person that like maybe it's fun to find like funny bugs and exploits in video games. And so even before I saw any videos on it, spoiler for a, a many year old game, if you haven't tried this yet, but uh, in Breath of the Wild, you can do this thing where you can really like zoom across the countryside. If you uh, like you do a stasis on a giant boulder and you hit it a bunch and then you drop a bomb right in front of it. And then you climb onto the boulder and then when stasis goes off and you hit the bomb, like you hit, the, you blow up the bomb and then stasis goes mm -hmm. up yeah, and you yeah. launch into the stratosphere. And I was like, that is a hilarious way to get around. And also if the rock hits something, it damages them. And so you can like charge into battle with it. It's very, very funny. And right. you can travel great distances very quickly. And so I was like, I wonder if this would work. And like, that's the sort of stuff that I enjoy doing. And I didn't realize it often leads to sort of like, Seething a game into well now i can just destroy this game super efficiently which is less fun and i tend to not finish games when i discover too many ways to like beat them easily which is mm -hmm. the downside um but anyway to go back to teaching and winning and all this other stuff i the biggest joy for me in games is discovering the strategy and i want to do that on my own and i get very very frustrated when people teach me strategy, both for that reason and because of how behavioral psychology works. If you plant ideas into people's brains, no matter whether they follow you or don't, they're going to have that in their brain. So if someone teaches me strategy, I either follow that strategy and now I feel like I am not playing the game myself because I was affected by this strategy instruction or I purposefully go against it and now I have this thought in the back of my mind of like am I setting myself up for failure am I not getting the most out of this game am I not discovering things on my own because I was told that strategy so no matter what I do because you told me strategy I am frustrated hmm, hmm. interesting and it's all because you want to discover it on your own. You have to feel like you were the one who was clever enough to figure it out. You don't want, yes. I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, um, no, no, no. I, one of the reasons I play games is to test and expand my intelligence for sure. And so I absolutely right. want to figure it all out on my own. So, so the opposite side of that is, and this is why I like to teach strategy. Um, I think that, so not everyone is like, 
us. I was going to say you, but really us, right? I mean, like, <laughs> meaning like gamers who are into strategy and figuring things out, right? Like, I love playing and being like, okay, yep, yeah, mm -hmm, this is how this works. I feel clever, right? I One of my favorite yeah. things about games is when they make me feel clever, when yeah. they make me feel like I have options that let me feel clever. I like, I love games that make me feel like I'm cheating because <laughs> I can do something so cool that while it's balanced, it feels a lot like cheating. Um, and, you know, so that's why I tend to like games with like where you can compound actions and stuff and, and do things. Mm -hmm. um, those are tougher to balance, but they can be balanced. And I like when they're balanced because then I don't feel like I'm breaking the game. I just feel like I'm, I'm getting a little edge on the game, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of the games I design are made to be family-friendly games that are a little trickier than what might be your average mass market game, right? Sometimes a lot bit trickier, but um, a usually a little bit trickier. Um, and so with that being the case, the audience that I'm showing games to many times could use a little tip or two, right? So I'll find myself saying things like, hey, when you're, uh, you know, in the game, you're going to be buying these things. Um, you'll probably notice that you have a better chance of getting these in the early game and these in the late game. Um, or, you know, you can buy anything you want. I would suggest that you pay attention to what balance you have of those when you're playing, mm. right? Uh, in my so game, Into the Black. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that first one, to me, that first one is not strategy per se. So like right. if you were teaching me a game and you said, you'll notice this is more common in the beginning, this is more common in later, that I'm fine with. That second one would really frustrate me is the, right. Uh, right. Or you like, know, what happens if I want to see what happens if I buy only the one thing? Right. Well, you're going to, but, but also mm -hmm. my goal when I'm introducing a new game to a game group, right? Whether it's my game or someone else's game or whatever, and I'm sitting down at the table to play a game with my wife, with my kids, my goal is for them to have an enjoyable experience. And if they played the whole game focusing on this one thing and then got like the worst score and were stuck and had no fun, that has now colored their opinion of the game because they missed the simple strategy. Like, not, you know, I'm not, I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm saying they missed. Mm -hmm kind of the point, right? Um, which is easy to do if you are not a seasoned gamer like many of us are. Um, now, I'm not going to say like, listen, you're going to want to focus on either castles or dragons or this. Like, You got to pick a thing. You got to commit to it. I, I would never give that much strategy. Um, I like to, you know, kind of dance around the idea of like, hey, here's some things that might be useful to understand, Right. You know, like in roll for it's a great example. I've taught roll for it to so many people. Uh, shout out to Calliope and Chris leader. Um, <laughs> like it's a super fun game. I love it. Um, there are the cards where you need to have six dice out. Like you have six dice and there are certain cards that will take all six of your dice. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, they're worth a ton of points. I think there were like 15 points, which is a lot in that game. But you also may find yourself trying to, finish that for 10 turns because you know you've got five sixes out there you need one last six and you have a one in six chance of rolling that every time right um which means you may roll it sometime on the 35th of february 
Um, mm-hmm. problem, right? <laughs> so I, whenever I'm teaching that game, I say, hey, look, these are worth a lot of points. Buyer beware. Sometimes <laughs> you may get stuck on them for a very long time. Other times you might get lucky. But like, I like to point out the statistics of what that looks like. Because so yeah. many times I've played with a new player who's been like, well, this wasn't fun. All I did was try and finish this card. And it's like, well, because you made a poor choice. But like, you know, you know, it's not their fault if they don't understand enough to know that it's a poor choice. Um, That's fair. I have a counterpoint. Sure. The, the games that I find myself gravitating to, and I think this has to do with how much I care about discovery. You're, you know, the example that you gave, let me see if I can reword it correctly. It's like, you know, you can focus on balance or you can just focus on this one thing and that might color the player's experience because of the choices that they made and they have a bad time because they get absolutely trounced in the score. The games that I love the most are the ones that have a lot of flexibility in paths to victory and reward choices like that or allow like undiscovered paths. Mm -hmm. Um, An example one example is Imhotep. Imhotep is one of my favorite games. I don't know if you're familiar with Imhotep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my favorite things, so very, very quickly, Imhotep, what you're doing is building five different types of buildings and you put bricks of your color on boats and then you send off boats to the different places and all the bricks go in the specific order. And you can specialize in one or two buildings or you can diversify and build four or five of them. And there are different pros and cons to doing both. And so it is very hard to actually get stuck in a rut. It's a tactical game as opposed to a strategic game. And this is a very, very important thing, I think, to follow up with is um, I super, super love tactical games much more than strategic games because I feel like the play style that I have and that I want and this sort of thing of like, don't teach me strategy, I'll figure it out as I go is much more easily rewarded and much easier to parse in tactical games as opposed to strategic games. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I 100% see your perspective on it. And, you know, I think there's a time and a place when I will explain strategy in a, in ones where I would, I would never even consider it. Right. Yeah. Um, I think audience is an important, like, way yeah, to yeah, yeah. the thing that you're saying. Like, audience is the super clutch of, stuff like that but honestly that's something that i've done in demos too sometimes both for other games and my own games is just ask people if they want to hear strategy i am not opposed to strategy being told i just want to be able to opt into it so something i really really like is like the rules are just the rules in the rule book it mm-hmm. is just teaching me the rules and then the last three pages of the rule books are like here is the tips and tricks like yeah. here's a quick start guide if you need help. And it's like, that is my favorite stuff because it's separated out and I can choose right, to skip it, right. which I will always skip it. But I know that not everyone wants to. We did that uh, in Into the Black Forest because it's a trick-taking game that is very different from a standard trick-taker. You're playing four tricks at once, um, but they're limited on the number of cards you can put out to each of them. Some are played face down, some are played face up. Um and sometimes at first, the first time you go to play the game, you're a little unsure of what to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the back, we just we have a one page of strategy that says, hey, consider these things. And it's labeled as strategy tips for beginners. Like, yeah. so you could just not read that, right? Um, 
but there's just some for very simple game there's some complexities of like it does some weird things like if you lose a trick you get your card back but if you win the trick you lose your card um it's like an auto balancing thing that works really well i do say Mm -hmm. so myself uh but um afnir does that and it's incredible it is it works really well like as a way to like auto balance a trick taker um but people don't always get it at first you know like Mm -hmm. Um, and so that little strategy guide is helpful. And, you know, again, it's like you would have requested it's in the back. It's labeled as such so that somebody who really could use some strategy can read it. And somebody who, you know, doesn't might not. And it's funny because it actually, I believe has competing strategies in there where it's like, you might find it's good to focus on this. And then it's like, you might find it's good to focus on the opposite of that. Um, but (laughs) You know, trying to guide the players <laughs> to sometimes focusing on one of these is better than just randomly, you know, making a smattering of choices and hoping that it works out. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing is when you're teaching players who don't play games as much as you and you play games a ton. Right. So think about it this way. Let's think of you're about to play one of your favorite games. It's a big, crunchy game. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got some friends. They play games, but they've never played this big, crunchy game. Right. But they've played you know, games around that. And you say, I'm going to teach you how to play this game today. It's going to be really exciting. You sit down, you teach them, you include zero strategy. Um, and then you just trounce them because it's your favorite game. You've played it three dozen times. They've never played it before. Now, if I'm the game player, I actually find that kind of annoying, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, from both positions. One is like, well, you know, Jamie, they knew how to play all this stuff. They knew all the secret strategies. Uh, I knew nothing. So I just was guessing in the beginning. Right. Um, and so I just did this stuff and it didn't work out. And, you know, they won by like a hundred points. That's not fun. That said, I've been in the opposite position where I haven't taught any strategy. And then I've been the person who's done that. And I feel like a lot of the players are like, Oh, Yeah. And you're like, oh, you'll get better if you play it more. And they're like, but do I want to play it more? Mm. Like, you know, um, so one alternative that I've used in games uh, and I see used in a lot of games, and it's one of my favorite tricks as an alternative to teaching strategy is give the player a hidden goal at the beginning of the game. And that is the same thing as teaching strategy, uh, but it's part of the game. So like if I say, Jamie, you want to go for mushroom houses. And Jason, you want more points for going for mushroom airplanes, right? Uh, Which sound hella unsafe. (laughs) Mushroom helicopter might make more sense, but still does not sound safe. Okay, we need. This is the game we're co-designing: mushroom (laughs) airplanes. (laughs) Mushroom transportation. Yeah. Yes. um, um, I hear mushrooms are hot right now. So, um, but any, but anyways, right? So, like, really. All a hidden goal card is doing is giving your player strategy. It's baking strategy right into the, into oh, yeah. the game. I and mean, that is something that I have taken advantage of. And like in my own designs, it's something that I use to teach. But how do you feel about that, that though? Like, how do you well, feel? Because the game is saying, Jamie, this is what you should care about. I feel great about it, actually. If it, is baked, if it is baked into the game. So here's the deal. I've been talking about. I want to learn strategy on my own. How do I do that? I do so through playing the game. The game should be teaching me the strategy. The game well, should be showing me what I want to care about. Okay. Counterpoint so the, real quick. You got to let me say this. I'm going to forget. And I think this will change your answer. You'll still disagree with me, but 
So, um, so let's pretend I wrote a rule book, right? And it says randomly decide the player order and give each player a number, right? And then in the rule book, it says player one, you're going to focus on this. Player two, you're going to focus on that. Player three, here's your strategy. Player four, that's no different than Nightmare. giving you a card that does the exact same thing. Yes, it is. How? It is. It's it not. You're making so, that up. <laughs> no, I'm not. Telling me directly what to focus on is telling me strategy, and that's frustrating. But, giving me giving me guideposts that I can choose to follow or not, that I can audible into or out of, that is giving me hints of what strategy okay, is. Okay, I don't, okay. I, don't want, no. I don't want you to tell me what the strategy is. I want you to give me hints. Give me breadcrumbs. So, things to follow and focus on. I guess so, what... I was just saying, what I'm saying is, if if the card text is you're going to get 50 bonus points for building the most mushroom houses, right? Yep. If it says that on a card, or if it says that in the rule book for player one always earns bonus points for mushroom houses, is that the same thing, or is that no, different? It, that's different. So, I mean, that's different. All right, so this example is flawed because in the rule book it's static, and on the card it's random. But like if I you can get any random card, but if you randomly assign player order, right? I, oh, I, that's fair. I, I get it. So here's the thing: you're 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 right. I'm just <laughs> trying just, to like I hate the term classic. devil's advocate, but I'm trying to point out like that there are ways that you're okay with people teaching strategy, and there are yeah. ways that you're not okay with it. Oh, a hundred percent. Even though they feel to an outsider like myself very very similar. The the biggest difference for me is hints are cool if they are in the game like so basically what is the, what are the strategies of the game the game does need to tell you those otherwise right, right. there's no point to any of the choices that you make those should be baked into the game uh and here's an example of a way to give a hint on strategy we're mm -hmm. playing lords of waterdeep we have those default spaces we're trying to get cubes. You could get two orange or two black or one white or one purple. And it's like, all right, mm -hmm. cool. Well, clearly that's a hint that white and purple are more valuable. And then you look at the four quest cards that are on the table. And one of them, it's like, you'll get 10 points and you have to spend like six orange and six black and one white. And it's like, all right, cool. That's 10 points for a whole lot of orange and black and one white. And then mm -hmm. this other one is like, it's 28 points, but it costs like four white and four purple. And it's like, all right, cool. Very easy to see what some strategic paths are. I can go hog wild, stock up on a ton of orange and black, or I could take my time, slowly build up white and purple, and get those bigger things. And like, here are two very clear, like, strategic paths. That's the kind of stuff that I like. Player goal cards at the start are awesome because, and, and in order for me to feel comfortable with them, in order for me to feel like they are balanced, I can win without following that goal card. If I have to follow that goal card to win, I am frustrated. Right. Well, I think if you have to follow that goal card to win, it should. Well, what if it's like win condition though, right? Like it's like, you know, for instance, in like a social deduction game, like werewolf, right? You're randomly given a card and that determines your entire strategy for the game. Yeah, that's a. I mean, I get that it's different, but. That's a very different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that. I think that's a separate discussion, in fact. And there was something else that I wanted to touch on that you were saying, but now I have forgotten. I've forgotten the thought. Well, what let me throw it? one more thing out here. So, game designer uh, Richard Launius, uh, who did like a lot of Cthulhu stuff, 
Um, he's done like a lot of the eldritch horror stuff over mm-hmm. the years. Um, he one time I, I was talking to him at a random um unpub, I think because he used to go to all the unpub events because he knew the people. Um, and he was there and he was talking about how he's like, I want the game to tell me what I have to care about and what I don't. I don't want the game to surprise me with what I have to care about. Right. So, um, and the way he pointed it out was he said, I was playing this game and, um, it was like one of the options is to build fences. And he said, I said to the people playing with me, like, um, like, do I have to build fences? He said, you absolutely do not have to build fences. And he was like, okay, well, I'm not going to build fences then. He's like, and then in the end of the game, I had zero fences and I got minus 10 points because I didn't build any fences. Mm-hmm. And I was like, just tell me you have to build fences. Like literally say you must <laughs> build fences. Otherwise you're penalized or don't make that a thing because that should yeah. not be something you have to discover, right? You may discover that, oh, at the end of the game, I'm going to lose some points because other things could affect me because I didn't build fences. But if you're just going to straight up say this, this, you had to have done this or you lose points. Just, he's like, just make me do it. Don't make me make the trade-off and make the decision. And see, I have a, so I, I see what he is saying and I don't, I have the, okay. So my version of that, that I would want if someone was teaching me that exact game and I say, well, do I have to build fences? I want them to say to me, you definitely don't have to build fences, Here's the repercussion for not building fences. Right, right. Like, tell actually, me the rule, because that is rule. Right. That's not strategy. You tell me the information that I need to make the decisions. I mm-hmm. want to be the one making the decisions. I don't right. want you to make the decision for me. So uh, Richard was his name? Yeah, Richard Lanius, yeah. yeah. Richard Lanius. So Richard's statement of just tell me that I need to build fences, don't even make it a choice. I say, absolutely make it a choice if you want it to be a choice. Right, absolutely right, Absolutely make it a choice. Tell me. What happens when I make either choice and then let me make the choice? That's what I want. Right, right. You know, I. it's funny because I actually brought the quote up because I thought I agreed with it. And then as soon as I finished saying it, I was like, I actually don't agree with him on this. <laughs> I actually yeah. agree with what Jamie's going to say because I knew what you were going to say uh, yeah. because I thought of it. And I was like, well, that's what Jamie's going to say. And I thought, no, no, I agree with Jamie. <laughs> I, I, I have to right. disagree with Jamie. Right. Um, no, I no, I was saying I agree with you. Once I said it, I thought yeah. – this is a good example. And then once I said it, I was like, no, I'm on Jamie's side with this. Like I, um, finally. Yeah. So I think in the end, I, I agree with you on a lot of those points, uh, around yeah. this. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I definitely understand why in most cases teaching strategy is not optimal. Um, but I also think there are some yeah. times when it absolutely, absolutely is critical to ensure that new players, have fun with a game you know yeah that point that you made about like when i have a lot of experience with a game and i'm teaching first-time players that really Mm -hmm. resonated with me um again it's the sort of thing where i think it is prudent to ask how much strategy they want to hear and i think giving players the context of like you know i have played clank upwards of 50 times more than Mm -hmm. 50 times yeah yeah. if i'm teaching someone new the game of clank i will say i have played this many times Many, many times. Um, what amount of strategy would you like to hear from me, if any at all? Right, right. Like that, it, again, it's a matter of agency, which right. is what, that's a really important thing in games in general. All game designs. Mm-hmm. Like the, mm-hmm. the whole point of games is to give players agency 
And uh, th- I remembered the thing that I wanted to say before, too. You were talking about, I love it when games make me feel clever. Mm-hmm. Something that I have been saying more recently, and this might be an entirely different, uh, this might be our next episode that we record. Uh-huh. I have, and I, I'm still thinking about the ramifications of saying this, but I have said a bunch of times, the point of games is to make people feel any combination of smart, clever, or powerful. Right. That right. is what you are trying to do when you sit someone down. Like that is that is what a game is essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You want players to feel that. If players are not feeling that, time to make a, some changes. Right. And right. so the fact that you are saying you love it when games make you feel clever, I think all games should be doing that with everyone uh, as, to, some, to some extent. Um, so I. And I personally am not someone that feels clever if someone spoon feeds me the strategy. But yes, there's a lot of nuance to it, like we discussed here. And that's a really good point about context of how much one player versus another knows the strategy. And it's funny, like the example that you gave of, because there have been plenty of times when, and let me just give you an example. So I have a weekly board game night with my two housemates, Anders and Tucker, and they are very, very intelligent people um, who know games really well. Tucker, one of his favorite games is Taverns of Tiefenthal, which is this really cool and wild. Oh, my God. All right. So you know all about it. For anyone who doesn't know, it is a deck building game that has a lot of cool stuff going on. It's like a you're also building this board and you're improving this board. And there's a lot of cool stuff going on in that game. And I love that game. And I, let me tell you the experience of the last time we played. I, I've played it maybe five times with them. Mm-hmm. I did the best I have ever done the last time we played. I finally scored just about 100 points. And I was like, damn, I scored 96 points. This is my personal best. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. And Tucker was like, I have 175. And Andrews is like, I have 190 points. Tucker, despite this being his favorite game, uh, what tied for his favorite game has never beaten Anders and I have never beaten Tucker. And to me, that is, uh, that is energizing to me. I am inspired to do better. And I right, know right. That, that is a very specific thing to Jamie and people like me. Um, uh, but I can definitely see times where that is frustrating for players. And I have been on mostly the other side where it's like people I see the frustration on the other side because I tend to get inspired to do better the next time I play right Um, or at least I have in the past uh I should revisit that now that I have way more games and way less time um here's a question I have for you about that so let's take this Taverns of Tiefenthal thing right um your roommates beat you like crazy in this game right Let's say you play the game for the first time. They beat you. You try a strategy. Clearly does not work. You see them trying strategies that clearly work. Will you use a strategy you see someone else using? Or do you have to invent the strategy on your own? I, you asking me that question made me realize a big missing piece that I have omitted by accident. I absolutely discuss strategy with the other players at the end of the game. I just don't, I want to discover it during the game, but I will discuss and research after. I mean, I am not the type to like do research online, but every single time we play a game, we do a postmortem of some kind where it's like, you know, it's like I tried this and it didn't work. And then Tucker might say, yeah, I saw that it didn't work. I think because of X, Y, Z, like maybe you needed to buy that table upgrade earlier to like make your plan pan out better. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is like, I didn't think, 
Like, I wasn't sure how this was going to work. This is what I experienced on my end. Cause you know, I can't see all of the choices that someone makes if, you know, if there's private information in some way. And he's like, my plan was this, this is what my mindset was. Here's the choices that I made that fed into that. And that sort of thing. We do that all the time. Okay. Um, and I think I was that just is curious. Yeah, I think that is a part of figuring out strategy. It is not necessarily the case that I will copy that, but it is assumed like by my brain in my own brain that one of the fun things about learning strategy is seeing what works for other people and trying to emulate that on your own. And often what that means for me is discussing and asking questions and like, how did you feel about it? What were like, why did you make these choices? That kind of stuff. Um, and I do that in just about all the games I play. I think that is a mm-hmm. fun element of learning games on a deeper level. Um, but, you know, it's definitely the case. Maybe people want that ahead of time or like during the game. I know that there are some people that like to discuss their strategy as they are playing, um, which is not me. That's not me, but that's some people. It is some people. So Cool. Well, this was a good discussion about this. I like this. Yeah. This was fun. I like how we tapped into different ways to teach the game too. I didn't expect yeah. to. Yeah, neither that. did I, but that worked That's... out really well. Yeah. Um, do you want to pitch one of your games you haven't shown yet? Ooh, pitch one of my games I haven't shown. Um, I'm trying to think about which ones I haven't. You mentioned two before we started recording. And the second one, I feel like I've never heard you talk about. Oh, oh, and I know why I haven't talked about it. Okay, yes. Yeah, so I have a maybe yet, you can't. I don't know. So I can, I can talk about it, and I can talk about why I can't talk about it. Um, or I wasn't able, but now I'm able to. So, oh, um, I know what this one is now. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No worries. Uh, so I have yet another one v one dueling game. Um, which makes three now. Uh, and I have a fourth one on the way, which is very different. It's a Mancala game anyway, but this one is yet another one V one dueling card game. Um, complexity wise, it is kind of in the middle ground between Elemistic and fight sequence. And when I showed it to wise wizard, they were like, I absolutely see the influences of both games on this game. Uh, and I said, I guess I have a type. Um, so this game was originally going, I was hired by a company to make a game around an anime IP they unfortunately, we were on board, me and the company were on board, and then Crunchyroll stepped in and was like, it's time to give you the art, but instead we are canceling your contract, and everyone was sad. Um, and so I am allowed to make the game without the anime IP, so I've adapted it to be gunslingers in a high fantasy setting. And the mm-hmm. main idea here is that players have a 25-card deck, and it, so it's currently called Hex Shooters, because, you know, six shooters and spells... Um, mm-hmm. like Adam Sanabia for that name. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to stick with it, but I haven't liked any other name that I've picked. Anyway, the idea is you pick a different type of mage and they have cards that are specific to them. Um, and the big thing that I'm playing with here is probability math and it being an, an a reverse deck builder, a deck mm-hmm. culling game, a yeah, deck yeah. breaker, stump, something like that. So each, each mage, you, you have a six card hand at all times, because you have a six shooter. And the idea is that the bullets are your spells. And you have a 25 card deck that has six copies of shoot, four copies of dodge, which is the basic defense, and then three copies each of your five specific cards. Mm -hmm. You also have a little momentum card. So at the beginning of the game, you have a power that alters your shoot cards. The shoot card is extremely basic. It has no cost. It deals one damage. And players have an amount of stamina. So... 
the way this works is you pick your character, you get your thing that tells you how your shoot cards are modified. Um, so one example is, uh, you know, the lightning mage, whenever they play shoot, they draw a card. Easy peasy. Um, the ice mage, their shoot ignores armor, which is the defense of the game. Um, so the big, big thing here is that most cards have a cost. And the most common cost is burning cards. You have to, in order to play this card and it has a burn cost of one, I have to choose a different card in my hand and burn it. That means I will never draw it again. So your mm -hmm. deck is getting sh shorter and shorter and it functions like a deck building game. If I need to draw a card and I cannot, I do the shuffle the discard and keep drawing. Right. But I'm burning more and more cards over the course of the game. And when I've burned 20 plus cards, I lose players have a certain amount of stamina that is purposefully quite low. Right now it's six for all characters. It might change in the future. This is an early prototype, so I'm still doing uh, you know, core development on it. If I deal you a damage and you have a stamina, you lose a stamina. If I deal you a damage and you have no stamina, you have to burn the top card of your deck instead. Oh, okay. If you burn cards from your deck, you do not get to see what they are. Oh, bummer. Yeah. If you burn cards from your hand, they are public. So, a lot of the strategy of the game revolves around you know you have three copies of each of your special cards you have six copies of shoot which is modified in some way to benefit you and you have four dodges all of the defensive cards in the game pretty much require burning mm -hmm. whereas attacking does not so that's how you know action economy works in a general sense and mm -hmm. you have to strategize at all times what cards you are burning and when because that reduces your likelihood of drawing them in the future and when it gets to the point where your deck is taking damage, you no longer have full information of what you have available. Of course, your opponent doesn't either. So there are trade-offs there. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, hand management, deck management, all this other stuff. Uh, and I wanted to keep it not super complicated, which is, which is why there's only five different special cards. Um, I might even drop it to four, but I think five is... I tried four with the IP version. I didn't quite like it. Um, I wanted a little bit more flexibility with what the characters could do because they felt like one trick ponies and now they have mm -hmm. a couple of tricks up their sleeve. Um, and the final thing that ties it all together is that each mage has a momentum ability. That card that you get that tells you how your shoot cards are modified. Mm -hmm. The first time you reshuffle your deck, you flip it over and now you have a power that's unique to you. I forgot to tell you the structure of the game. Players go back and forth playing one action, and then the other card type is reaction. So if I play an okay. action, you may play a reaction, and then that's it. So it's like, there's the fight sequence influence of, I play an action, you might play a reaction, reaction resolves first, and then my action resolves. You can't right. react to reactions, so it's a binary thing. Mm -hmm. Some reactions deal damage, which is exciting, because it's damage that can't be prevented. Um well, it can be, but uh, that's a whole thing. Uh, sometimes right. you have persistent powers as well. So you pay the cost, you play the card, it's persistent, it stays right there. Um, and then what's the other thing? You can reload, which is your entire turn. You discard any persistent cards and then you draw back up to six cards. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing you can do on your turn is purge, which is just discard your whole hand. That's if you want to draw six new cards with reload, but you're a sitting duck for a turn because you have no okay. hand. Okay. And that's the game. That sounds so really game. interesting. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I would definitely it. give that a try. It's still rough around the edges, but the idea is that in terms of complexity and time to play, it is more than Elemistic. It's meatier than Elemistic, but 
easier than fight sequence, which, by the way, we'll have a lot of strategy tips in the rule book in the back for people who want those. <laughs> I hope you don't label it. I hope you just surprise people like, ah, you learn strategy. Ha ha, sucker. <laughs> it will be a giant title in the character sections. So do not worry. read. Spoiler alert. You will be taught Spoiler. strategy and you may resent it. <laughs> oh my god if i could do the spoiler tags on discord maybe that's the way to do it you like include one of those funny little decoder ring things and all the strategy mm-hmm. tips have that like fuzzy on it so you need to use the decoder to read the strategy that's that might the way be to a do little it. overkill but i do like but it. it'd be funny <laughs> it would be funny spoiler your strategy Spoil put spoiler tags on your strategy that's the that's the thesis statement of jamie I like it. (laughs) Well, hey, this has been a good convo. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, listen to things. Yeah, I like yours too. I like that we a lot of times don't agree on stuff because it gives us real fun conversations about different perspectives. And it's one of my favorites. Um, Listeners, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, If you want to get in touch with us, you can go to buildinggamepodcast.com. There you can join our Discord, which you should do uh, real quick. Um, and then never leave. Um, you can also email us at building the game podcast at gmail.com. And, um, yeah, you can also keep coming back every single week, but until next time, good night. Building the game, building the game with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends, building the game, building the game with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends, the end of the episode. That's when it technically ends.